Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. All right, I'm going to ask you an easy question, Dave, with an obvious answer. Ooh, I like those. What was the best hire you've ever made? Wow. So now you're getting into a tough question disguised as an easy question. Well, so it's, I, it's, I it's feel like the obvious answer is me. Yeah, I, I feel like that, but I can't let you off the hook that easy. So I'll have to think of somebody else. But while we do, why don't we get into the podcast? Yeah, well, I, the reason I, I, I mentioned it is because I'm, I'm going on 10 years at BusyWeb working in business development, which mm-hmm. is a pretty rare thing to have somebody be that good for that long. And in this day and age, one of the things that everybody is challenged with is finding good hires, let alone finding great sales hires and figuring out what do you need to do and what really t- makes a, a good salesperson tick. So yeah. I'm honored that we were able to go completely deep into the pool and find one of the great experts in the industry about that. Our guest today is uh, Jonathan Porter Wisman. He is the author of the book, The Sales Boss. which is The Real Secret to Hiring, Training, and Managing a Sales Team. He is also the head of two different companies, one of which is called Who Hire, which is a data-driven analysis to finding your good hire, and also Perception Predict, which is, uh, I I can't even do it justice in in an intro, but it's just he's doing fascinating work. So thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, excellent. Welcome. I'm looking forward to it. And with your expertise in the marketing space, you know, when you spend time in organizations doing sales and sales consulting, there's always that question like, what's the difference between sales and marketing? And yes. the truth is, there's this very intricate dance that has to happen between both, or neither of them work effectively. So, this, I'm looking forward Absolutely. to this conversation. That's oh, a great. Good. That's a great place to start because, as you just said, that I, I a light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, "Oh God, what is the difference between sales and marketing?" So, how I would think about it is this, and and I'd be curious to get your take. Say, marketing is the effort of getting somebody from t- from not knowing you to saying, "Yes, I'd like to talk." Mm, yeah. And, and then sales is the art of getting that person who says, "Yes, I'm interested and would like to learn more." to here's some money for a good or service. Sure. I, 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 can, I can go with that uh, definition. The, you know, the old school definition is marketing makes the phone ring and sales is what happens afterwards. But so much of sales now doesn't necessarily even require a phone. And mm-hmm. so I think we have to redefine that. I, I know when I'm working inside of an, an organization and they have good marketing rhythms in place, which means they're known in the community they need to be known in. It's really the level of trust that exists there that makes the job of the sales team so much easier because they're, they're not having to convince, they're not having to drag people along. Um, it, it's, they're, they're already positioned as the expert. So I think of it as if, if, you know, if your company is a stage play on Broadway, marketing is sort of the set and the lighting and it creates mm. food for the entire audience when they come in and makes you receptive to the actor and the play. If you've ever gone into, you know, a sort of an off-Broadway play that has a low budget, you automatically, like your standard sort of goes down because the sets <laughs> are great and the lighting's not that great and the audio quality is not that great. So that's where I think that getting that right is that it's, it sort of sets the mood. I, uh, I love that. Can I steal that? Sure, you can you well, can if, steal it. Yeah, if I'll you see. weren't going to, I was going to because that's that's brilliant, and I've never and heard I, that. I, and I stole it. I just remember from who. Oh, right <laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, thank you to whoever gave that to John, so he can give it to all all of us. Better you, than cats. Yeah, you are uh, well known in the industry as being an expert as identifying good quality talent. So, talk us through what are sort of the five indicators that people really need to look at when they're when they're hiring somebody. At five, I picked a random number, but uh, yeah, how, do you, how do you find right. good people in this day and age? You know, that's a great question. In, in almost every area of the business, there's metrics, right? So there's sales metrics, there's marketing metrics. If you're in the finance department, they've got accounting and you got to hit all your KPIs. But for some reason, 
every company goes, we need to have great people. We need to make great hires. But the cost of a bad hire and that turnover doesn't show up on anybody's P&L statement as a line item responsibility, you know, to, to, to a, a specific, you know, it doesn't end up under Dave's thing, even though Dave pays for it, right, as the business right. owner. So when you say, what are the five things? Interestingly, I think uh, probably if I had to split it just randomly, if you chose the no- number five randomly, I would say three of them have nothing to do with the actual candidate. It has Ooh. to do with the, the organization and are you equipped as an organization to really understand what do you need and to support growth and to support somebody doing their best work. And because people come and stick and stay in an organization as long as they believe they can still do their best work in life doing it for you. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Because people want to do good work, they want to thrive. They, 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 you know, they don't want to be on a treadmill. So you can fix a lot of your turnover and a lot of your performance problems just by fixing sort of, sort of your company. I remember going into an organization uh, in the Midwest that w- had an atrocious uh, turnover problem, mm-hmm. and that was one of the things that they wanted me to to, uh, to help them with. And I flew in to 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 just go through as a candidate their process. And I flew in and went into the, got into the airport and they had booked me in the worst hotel in town. Oh no. So I'm already sort of, uh, you know, (laughs) and then in the morning I find my way over to the HR office and the doors still locked. About 10 Uh minutes later, the HR manager comes in, fumbling around, keys in the lock, gets in, asked me to sit outside their office. And the office has magazines that are a year old. It's sort of dusty, like right away. And I just share that as an example of, Mm -hmm. you know, your your applicants are already making uh, judgments about you. So in my book, The Sales Boss, I talk about that in your, and I'll go back to the idea I use for marketing. It's a stage play. In this case, put on by a psychologist. Like you have to really think about your people you're bringing into your organization, and I would argue this also includes your employees even more so. And you need to be answering the question: What do I need them to think? What do I want them to feel? And what do I want them to do as a result? So when they walk through your office, what do you want them thinking? What do you want that feeling to be? Right. And that's visual. It's kinesthetic. It's how does it smell? It's, mm-hmm. it's all of those sort of things together. And the problem is when we live in a, in, in a building every single day, we start just looking past the roughness right. of it. Yeah. Right. I remember when I moved into the house I'm in, it really bothered me. There's a, a piece of tile right inside our front area and the grout is gone and it bugged me every day. Uh-huh. And now I don't even notice it. Yep. Right. And, and so I, those would be the, I would just bunch a bunch of things into those sort of three buckets. And then the other two really get into being up close and personal with understanding what, it, what is the belief system of the person that you're hiring. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is things are only good or bad by comparison. Mm-hmm. Like you think about when you think something's great in life, you're always comparing it to something you experienced in the past. I remember my first car, right? I thought it was a it was an okay car, but when I would rent a car, I always thought it was an awesome vehicle because it was better than the car I drove. Right? <laughs> right? And and, yeah. and 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 then time passes, and there's not many rental cars that I like to rent now because it's just standards have changed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you're hiring somebody, and this goes outside of sales into any role, is you really need to uncover how do they define great? Because if you can define how they how they came to their definition of great, all of a sudden you're in a position a to influence that if you need to, Mm -hmm. but you really want to hire people whose definition of great is as close to yours as possible or as Mm -hmm. close to what you need in that role. Right? So even just think about compensation. Mm-hmm. Great compensation for you as the business owner is different than an entry level person, but you have to know how do they define great, right? And plug into that. What does it allow them to accomplish in their life? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I love that. 
Well, and as as we go through, Jonathan, I think you know the example that you that you shared about walking into an office and you know the the magazines are dusty and you know the experience, the customer experience is a little off. It got really weird in the past couple of years because almost everything has gone at least partially virtual. So one of the things that we're seeing with our customers, I think, is that there's a lot more weight placed on the digital experience for a customer and maybe the interactions that come in. So are there ways or are there things that you're doing when you're connecting with your customers that help to instill that trust and confidence and lower the barriers from a digital perspective. Yeah, well, you play in this space all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So your your front door is your website and your right. your marketing. So you, you the nice thing is you can sort of craft that, but I would right. say they still get dusty over time. Right? Uh-huh. So how do we keep it fresh? How do we keep it interesting? Um, even, uh, and I write about this in my book, even the email communication I give to an incoming candidate Mm-hmm. It's leaving an impression about who we are as a company. So word choice and language is very important. So I'm placing all of those things, you know, on the business side of it, where I'm right. really excited with the work that I'm doing with Perception Predict and Who Hire is just a product of Perception Predict, just to, for uh, you know minor clarity there. What we're doing at Perception is we're doing large-scale data models that blend this whole world of IO psychology and psychographics, mm-hmm. which there's a massive amount of well-researched what makes people operate, how do they think, how do they uh, experience stress. Uh, and we've created an inventory of about 450 items that we can reliably measure. And so we go into an organization or an industry and we literally assess thousands and thousands of people. So we get this really intricate picture of what makes Mm -hmm. them up. Mm -hmm. And science says that about 70% of performance is baked into us. It's our, just the way we are structured. And you would know that's true when you look at a star athlete or a star musician, there is something fundamentally wired differently, Mm -hmm. right? About somebody that can do that. So we're getting that rich psychographics, but on the other side, we're ingesting actual performance data. So if it was sales, you know, how many deals are they closing? What's their close? What's, what is the close rate? How many new opportunities? And we're feeding that into a machine learning engine. So we're narrowing down that pool of psychographics to say, hey, these are really the only thing, 18 things or 20 mm-hmm. things that matter for your company, mm-hmm. for that role, for that individual. We call it a performance fingerprint. So you can deploy it on the front end of the hiring process. Candidate takes 10-minute assessment, roughly, maybe 20, if it's depending mm-hmm. on uh, the role. And we output a prediction. They're going to sell 275 a quarter, or they're going to last in your company for 18 months. Wow. One of the things that I know Perception Predict really works well in is is identifying great people in automotive sales. So... What are some of those psychographics that fit that model for? And I know everybody, it, 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 there's so many different yeah. variables on that, but yeah, what are some everybody. of the, the standards? Yeah, so the uh, it, it, it's not just automotive sales. It's really uh, any kind of role uh, in any organization because you're only looking at two things. Human data, like what makes us tick, who we are, right? And you think about our abstract reasoning, our emotional resilience, our curiosity, our coping skills, our interpersonal versatility. Those are all psychographics. And then some sort of data, like what's the output the employer needs? And we're just meshing those together. So when you talk about like uh, in automotive, we're able to predict how many car sales somebody will sell pre-hire. But interestingly... It's different brand to brand, company to company. So somebody that does really well selling a luxury brand has sort of a different psychographic profile mm-hmm. uh, than somebody that's selling maybe you know an, uh, a, a, an entry-level brand. And that becomes a nice insight for organizations because many auto dealers have multiple brands under their umbrella. And right. so they already have incoming candidates to be able to place them in the role that makes sense for them. And we find that in also enterprise companies where they might have a variety of roles from an enterprise sales to sort of commercial sales to Mm -hmm. customer success. They might have somebody come in and apply in one role and they say, you know what, 
this person actually is less uh, fit for this role, but we have a great place for them over here where they really thrive. Sure, sure. Well, I suppose that could be in like, instead of even just different kinds of brands or different luxury levels for auto sales, for like a B2B services company that like BusyWeb serves, it might be different stages in the buyer's journey when people are either just researching and having connections or when they're ready to make decisions or engaging with different levels of executives as we get closer to the purchase decision, right? Yeah. So we do a lot of sales roles, a lot of customer mm-hmm. success roles, leadership roles within organizations. But how we how we really differ, what the the you know the sort of the next evolution is. There's been personality assessments out there for decades. Yeah. People think this yeah. Myers Briggs, uh-huh. the PI, which really focuses on you know the big five personality traits. It's sort of introversion, extroversion, and mm-hmm. some sort of cognitive. But it's sort of limiting. Like if you wanted to make a, a you know uh, if let's say you went into a really nice restaurant and you had the perfect meal. Mm-hmm. You just had this dish. If you tried to go home and recreate that, would you rather have three ingredients, personality and you know, introversion, extroversion, cognitive, or would you rather have this 550 ingredients where you could really dial it in? You're probably going to ha- right, have, ha- have more success doing that. And furthermore, the way you sort of amp that up mm-hmm. is to, 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 to not only have those ingredients, but have data tell you which of them are important. And I have some great stories about uh, yeah. insights from those kinds of studies that we've done that have been really surprising to people. Yeah. Please tell, tell me more. Yeah, because so this let's is, start there. Because I, yeah. I, I, the, the, the ability to model out performance, I think, is such a, a unique concept that I want to give us, give us one of those examples of this, how you were surprised. Here's a, here's a controversial statement. If somebody's sincere, they're going to churn out of your organization faster than an insincere person. Oh. What? Now, yeah. when you're interviewing somebody and they sit across from you and they're really sincere, what do you think? These this are great. Yeah. I love this. I want somebody who's yeah. going to shoot me straight, right? They feel uh-huh. like, you know, you want to go out and have a beer with them. Uh-huh. Now, I'm going to back up. That statement's only true for cleaning companies. That for the for the cleaner. So again, mm-hmm. remember every job, every role is different. What? We did a what? really deep research study, the largest that's been done on the planet for cleaning companies. Okay, and your cleaning technician, the more sincere they are, the sh- the faster they churn out of the organization. Huh. Now, you know, curiosity gets a hold of you. You're like, I wonder why that's the case. And the truth mm-hmm. is, it doesn't really matter why it's true. It just matters that the data says it's true. Right. Now, there's all sorts of reasons. When we talk to owners of cleaning companies, they say, well, that sort of makes sense if they're in the home uh, and the homeowner's having a bad day, they have a really hard time putting on a smiley face and sort of faking it right, with the homeowner, mm-hmm. but that's actually what's required. Mm-hmm. And when they're really sincere, they tend to take things personal. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. So th- but that's, that's really just an intellectual exercise mm-hmm. to say, why does this data point Makes sense. And, and the truth is, it doesn't have to make sense in order to give you really good results. And so when we work with cleaning organizations for a technician, we now have a fingerprint that predicts how are they going to do in the cleaning role from a technical can, can do the job, will get good customer mm-hmm. reviews, but also what's their flight risk. Sure. And one of the things you know that feeds into that, it's not just sincerity, there's a whole host of other entrepreneurial mm-hmm. intent and other things that we're measuring. But those are the kinds of things that you find really fascinating. We were doing a retail store. Uh, I won't mention the name of the company uh, here, just I don't like to air people's uh, laundry, but they, they, in, they think people selling like cell phones or digital products sure. in a retail setting. And they had a 50% churn problem within the first 60 days. So people would come in and 50% of their hires walk right out the door within 50 days. And half of the people they kept were missing their quota by more than 50%. So a massive problem for them. Yeah, They were super experienced at hiring. And they had a really well-defined hiring process. And it centered sort of around, and think of these are really probably your early career roles, right? Somebody mm-hmm. selling cell phones is not, you, know, you don't right. have a lot of job history to go off of. Mm-hmm. 
But so they would look at two things. One was customer orientation. So how are they going to treat the customer? Or do they have a customer mindset? And the second was, do they love technology? And if they love technology and they're going to treat the customer right, we have a great training program. We can teach them the rest of it. So every stage of their interview process was really about scoring and getting insights into that. And so we assessed thousands of those retail agents doing that against our psychographics, against their, uh, their performance data. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, we discover zero correlation between customer orientation and success in the role. Uh-huh. Zero. Uh-huh. So where they spent all their energy didn't actually move the needle for them. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to hire people to treat your customers right, but as, as a filter, it was the wrong filter. Mm-hmm. And then more disturbing for the executives was we found a negative correlation between uh, love of technology and success in the role, meaning the more they love technology, the worse they did. And they had it completely uh-huh. backwards. But they're selling technology. Yeah. And yeah. So there, again, you go curious, like, I wonder why that's the case. And, you know, mm-hmm. you could make some suppositions sure, about why sure. that might be the case. Yeah. You might say, hey, you know, they love technology so much, they overwhelm them with features and benefits. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, the customer leaves more confused than when they came in the door, or they're so comfortable with technology, they talk over the prospect's heads. Mm-hmm. But the reality is it just doesn't matter. It mm-hmm. just matters that the data tells you that. So I think in the what I'm really excited about is one drastically reducing that turnover rate for organizations. But I think more importantly, as an org as a company, you're doing a disservice when you bring somebody in. At least this is the way I've been in every one of my businesses, and I suspect mm-hmm. you know you guys are the same from my previous conversations with you. Like the, mm-hmm. that, that's your family that you're bringing in, really. They're not like mm-hmm. your blood family, right? And I don't mean to, to lighten that, but mm-hmm. you have a social contract with that person. They're going to provide value to your company. And in return, you're going to provide value to their life in whatever way they do that. That might be monetarily. It might be, um, you know, being able to inspire them so they can be better mothers and fathers and givers in their community. And, and when we mishire somebody, we break that. Like when we have to let right. somebody go, or when they quit because the stress of the job doesn't allow them to thrive, we've stolen a piece of their life from them that they can never get back. And I don't think business owners take that seriously. If you, you know, some, right. if, if you waste three years of somebody's life, that's a plus. The, look at the damage you've done to your business and your customers when you churn out of that role. Right. So yeah. I think we're providing sort of a a short circuit to that. Yes, we're excluding people out of some roles. Mm-hmm. But it's good for them and it's good for the company. Right, and the we're right also, role. at the same time, identifying people that could be a fit for the role that they might have never considered before because they, you know, they didn't play sports or they didn't look this, you know, whatever the mm-hmm. bias is the hiring manager has that they're putting into the hiring process. And we're sort of fixing that. I think what you just talked about, there's something that was sort of revelatory in my mind, but also really hard to wrap my mind around, which is you don't have to understand why the data is the way that it is to know that the data is. Yeah. Hey, do, you, you, do you run into that in your marketing for people? Like, yeah. Sometimes, oh, absolutely. sometimes you test yeah. something, you're like, that's the one I least thought would work. Yeah. <laughs> right? Color, uh-huh. word choice, yeah. layout, and yet uh-huh. yep. it doesn't matter. If it works, right. it works. Right. Yeah, and uh, and I I try and be truthful with people. Like, do you know why that happened? No, I don't. But it did. So That's um, why we measure. Yeah. I think the immediate follow up that if I were in that hypothetical sale, cell phone seller and you came to me and said that here is the data that's showing that the two things that you are really looking for in your salespeople aren't fundamentally what you need to be looking for. I think my first impulse would be to deny the data. No, yeah. that can't be right. So what? Uh, what is the, the, the it next? Is, it is. It yeah. is amazing at how revolted people are by data. Sometimes, like they really trust their gut. They think they are excellent, yeah. and and yeah. It, this has to do with uh, something called recency bias, mm-hmm. right? We tend to think we're. Like when we hire somebody and they do well, we pat ourselves on the back. We made a great choice, right? We got it exactly right. We forget the 
bodies we left behind that churned out. And there's mm-hmm. always another reason they, you know, they were lazy. They, you know, th- there's something, it wasn't, it does, we, it's like, we don't check the box to say, no, we really sucked at that, <laughs> at, that, <laughs> at, that at that hiring decision. And, and people tend to think that they're better judge of fit than they are. Um, and so sometimes you can give people lots and lots of data and they, they just sort of argue with it. And we've had plenty of op, uh, uh, clients where, uh, as an example, uh, I'll share one recently. Again, I'm not going to front the company out because it was for pretty personal. But right. they, they, they use us to hire many of the roles in their organization. And they had this one particular gal come in uh, and all the executive leadership team interviewed her. It's best candidate ever. And our score said, like a seven percent fit for the role. I I have Ouch. never seen a seven percent like that's really yeah. bad. Wow. Uh, and so you know they called me up. Well, because something's got to be broken in your system. And you know it's true. It's data. Like it's not. It's not a game of perfect. Mm-hmm. It's you're just predicting trends, right? And the idea mm-hmm. is that you're going to place better bets more often, more accurately. And you know, so we had discussion back and forth, and we said we'll stand by that rating. Uh, but make your own decision. Like you've, it's, you're all convinced that this is the role. She was, she was out of the organization within 60 days. Ouch. Yeah. And here's the thing: it wasn't that she wo- that she wasn't the best person to do that job. I believe she was. She had done it for many organizations. The problem was there was such a mismatch between her and the way they operated, that she was never going to thrive. It's like if you took a plant that needed a tropical environment and you mm-hmm. stuck it out in the middle of Minnesota in the winter, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It, yeah. it doesn't matter. That plant could be a great plant. It's just not going to mm-hmm. thrive. And you know, it, what's interesting is if you think about company uh, environments, there are people that thrive in dysfunction. You could have a completely dysfunctional company. Sure. And they'd love it. And there yeah. will be a certain amount of people that are A players in that environment. It is something mm-hmm. about it drives them. So what we really need to do is just find people that are comfortable in a dysfunctional right. environment and can thrive. Others mm-hmm. do really well when the boss never calls and they're sort of completely independent and there's no you know, guardrails, no, right. no, no coaching happening. So, so that, that's the magic of really understanding your company and... Why wouldn't you, when, when, when you, when people churn out of your organization, since it's possible to have this really rich psychographic data and you already have performance data, why wouldn't you be, uh, you know, banking that knowledge and that data and, mm-hmm. and having it almost like intellectual property, you know, like an asset for your organization? The mm-hmm. fact that they churned out of your organization, if it didn't teach you anything, then you really lost. But if you've churned through 100 people, you should at least be 100 times smarter about that role. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what, what role does somebody's gut really play in, in the hiring process? Should people trust their gut or is, should it be a combination of gut and data? Yeah, I actually write about that in my book. Yeah. You don't want to be known in your company as the data head. Nobody mm-hmm. loves a data head. Like, <laughs> you got to be human. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's really a balance. What I have to, be, I can't be data adverse. I have to love data. I have to be fluent in the data, but I equally have to be able to take the human element and my gut and intuition and people. And I've got to be able to blend that. So when the data is telling me my gut's wrong, I can't take offense. It should make me buckle down, study harder, think harder, and at least know what risk I'm taking. Because sometimes you take a risk, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I remember one of my early business mentors said, you know, don't don't ever, I'll offend lawyers and accountants, but they said, never ask your lawyer or your accountant how you should run your business because they don't run one. Most of them Mm -hmm. are solo uh, entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Their job is to tell you what the risk is. Right. And what the opportunity is. And then you take that risk, right? Should you write off the fur coat that you call, you know, you're hanging in the back, background as mm-hmm. office furniture. But, and people make various risk decisions. I think that's the role data has to play is an indicator of risk. When I hire this person for this role, what's the risk I'm taking? And I might mm-hmm. decide the risk is worth it, right? Because they have mm-hmm. a 
they they have a lot of connections. They have industry experience. You know, there's there's a whole host of reasons that I mm-hmm. might still make that choice. Uh, to me, in 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 selling in 2023, what I've sort of come to as a conclusion is that money doesn't matter nearly as much as risk tolerance. Because mm. I might be in a position where I'm in a buying place, but it's not necessarily my money. It's the company money. It's you know my owner's money, something like that. But my main motivation isn't necessarily to get the best price. It's to make sure that I am A, not at risk for making this decision, and that B, mm. that bet that you talked about is going to pay off for the company. So that concept you're saying, you're saying from a buyer's perspective. Yeah. 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 They're looking yeah. at making sure that if they make this decision, it's not going to come back and haunt them in any way. Mm-hmm. And I tend to say sometimes people are better buyers than we are sellers. Yeah. You, know, you ever dealt with a salesperson? Like it's just miserable. And nice. but you need the you need that service or product enough you buy anyway. And right. I hate it when I do that because I'm like, that salesperson is going around. Like, yeah, I rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm a great salesperson. I've sort of reinforced that. I want to be like, hey, buddy, I bought in spite of you, not because right. of you. Right. Yeah. I just, I just had that with something that I bought where I felt like, oh, I, I realized I was running over the, this very nice kid and who was, I kept asking, what about this? What about this? And he's just like, well, this was, his voice would almost crack. Well, as I told you, sir, the first time, I'm like, oh, all right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm too much. Too much in on that. So, uh, <laughs> circling back to the point, what are some? Do you, um, do you, do you run into the same thing? Just I don't, don't want to hijack the conversation, but no, you know, on a, on a hiring, and, and, and you know, I spent a lot of time in the hiring realm and the sales realms all also. But in the marketing side, do you find people also have an aversion to data, or how do your customers usually respond? Yeah. What sort of data do you do for them? I think the the big thing that people in our experience, you know, when when we're working with our clients at BusyWeb and we're doing B two B sales, you know, it's highly relationship based. It's data can be disproved or counterpointed very easily, so you have to be very careful with the kinds of data that you present. So if I say something that's an outlandish claim, our product is eighty percent better than X product then people start saying, well, that's, that smells funny, right? So that kind of data, where it's this versus that, tends to be counterproductive. And instead, what we find often is the service of removing barriers to entry is the kind of information, not necessarily data, but the feels-like information is the content that people respond best to. And this is over A-B testing and you know, you know, using our data to prove to the client in the back end that can actually flip it. So I agree that data can be sometimes if it, if you try to if you try to bury it with with data or if you try to just go you know, like nobody cares how many years your company's been in business. They care about if you can solve the problem. And so getting to those points as quickly as possible, at least in B2B, seems to be the answer. One of the most illuminating lessons of my life that I had, I learned at BusyWeb, where we were doing lead generation marketing for a promotions company. And I'm not going to say who it is. And about six months into the program, which all intents and purposes from a data standpoint, was working like gangbusters. We were getting these folks 10, 20, 30 leads a month that were fantastic. We got fired. They said, it's not working out. None of this is working. Uh, We're not making any money. And so the person who was running the program is a very nice woman who works at BusyWeb named Michelle. She was crushed because she just didn't know what happened. And so finally, it was driving me nuts because I didn't understand how that data was working either because... We were getting all these leads, and then as a result, that what 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 happened? So finally, I went back and called the guy and said, "What can you tell me? What happened?" And he said, "Yeah, you know, you were giving us all these leads, but they weren't converting." And I said, "Well, what were you doing to convert the leads?" He said, "Well, every time somebody filled out a form on our website and said that they were really interested in working with us, anything that came from your marketing efforts, uh, we immediately mailed them a brochure." 
and then they never called back. Like, well, okay. Dun, dun, dun. So yeah. this is so. As a result, then what what I've tried to change when when we talk to people is an alignment of what success means to you. So if you hire us to get you leads for your business, B two B service leads, okay, great. What does that lead look like? What are the elements that go into that? Because if I give you my mother-in-law's name, did I do my job? Well, on the one hand, yes. I gave you a lead, a phone number, and an email address of somebody to call. However, on the other hand, very much no, because she should not be buying anything. So finding the right fit and the right leads is, is something that I, I think what people are much more interested in and using. We, that's how we use data to, to align in that respect. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Did, did I hear you say you had Prince as a client at one point? Yeah, we, yeah, we did. I'm, I'm just, you don't have to break client confidentiality, although he'll probably forgive you at this point, but the, mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. Were you behind the marketing study that caused him to say the artist formerly known as? I mean, I'm just seeing. I'm seeing seeing Dave sitting there saying, "No, Prince, this is really a good move. Just go with artist (laughs) formerly known as." I wish I wish it was, but we uh, we built a website because he. This is like in the very last. We built the last website before he passed away, and so he was well after that. But he was trying to remove iTunes as the middleman and sell direct to consumer. And so we built a website to sell his latest album direct. And so it was very interesting and lots of lots of weird and uh, enlightening conversations over over walls because uh, at that point he wasn't speaking with anyone except for one person so it was always a game of telephone over the phone. But yeah. uh, lots of lots of very interesting stuff. It's like so you, didn't get, private, you didn't get a private yeah. concert out of the deal. No, no, and it was <laughs> it was uh, very very fun, and it was a great story. But you know that talk about a person who kind of leads and and interacts with the world differently than you would expect. Um, very much so. so. Yeah, you know that in my book, I in a section of it, I talk about the importance of understanding how people got their beliefs, mm-hmm. and. I think when you're exposed to people like Prince or that live a very different lifestyle than maybe mm-hmm. you've been exposed to, it might even be the first time you tra- travel to a foreign country and you're exposed to a different yeah. culture. You start recognizing like how somebody's, how much of somebody's reality is shaped by the environment they grew up in and their belief system. And I think the most powerful beliefs that people have are the ones that they don't even identify as a belief. Meaning they there's right. they grew up in an it's environment reality. where, where yeah. that was truth, right? Like we sort mm-hmm. of accept that the sky is blue. Mm-hmm. The reality is, how do we know the sky is blue? It's only because everybody around us has always told us the sky is blue. It could, mm-hmm. could be red, right? Like mm-hmm. we've just put a label on it, and that that's it. I'm, I'm like do a thought experiment of saying, what if I grew up in a small town and everybody said the sky is red? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful red sky, and uh, you know, Dave, you have beautiful red eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would just sort of like you wouldn't think of that as a belief, right? You would think yeah. of it as truth. And maybe you, you know, eventually you grow up and you got to leave small town and you travel and you get in a cafe and the waitress comes up and says, "Man, the sky is really blue today." And your eyes, Dave, are strikingly blue. Mm-hmm. You'd say, "Well, that waitress has lost her mind. She's the crazy right. one." Uh huh. And it would probably take a lot of people banging you over the head, calling the sky blue and your eyes blue for you to finally go, maybe I'm the crazy one. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone walks through life with a set of fundamental beliefs that they don't even, zero chance they recognize it as a belief. And so many automated actions happen from that core belief that are just fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's powerful work we can do as leaders and organizations, but also with people that, you know, in our community or in our companies that we interact with, is that to really authentically have the mindset of I believe you believe that, and what I that could sound really sarcastic, like I believe you right? believe that, yeah. But I actually mean that in a really authentic way. If if I can get up next to somebody close enough where I can legitimately say I believe you believe that, 
in the sense that if I had grown up the way you had, experienced what you had, you know, done, mm-hmm. done the things you had, been around the people you've been around, I would have also believed exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now I can yeah. remove any sort of judgment. And when people, when people feel judged, then they have to just sort of defend their point of view. You see that in politics all the time, right? Like, it's, right. like you, you just get a label as one party or the other anymore. And like somebody judges the entirety of, you know, your moral fabric and how you see society. And that's also not true. Mm-hmm. So I think that's super powerful as a, as a leader is understanding where did people get their beliefs from and then accepting that it's true. So one of the, in, in my book, I write about five truths about humans and I won't bore you with all of them. But one of them is that people are giving you 100% of what they're capable of or they have what they believe is a valid reason for not doing so. Okay. It doesn't matter that it's, not true, maybe. It's that they right. believe this, right? And, mm-hmm. and you can't argue with that. But you hear a lot of owners and companies somehow believing that their employees are sandbagging or don't want to work hard or they, you know, it, it's never that. They just don't want to work hard for you <laughs> for some reason that they believe is valid. You don't care enough. You don't recognize work. You don't pay. Like you insert mm-hmm. whatever the belief is. And it could be a completely false belief, but by the way, as long as it's true and you resist it being true, you'll never mm-hmm. get past that with them. Yeah. That's, that's, that's super interesting because I, I think the thing that I've always um, kind of latched onto is like, especially if things aren't working out the way that you would plan, never attribute malice where simple incompetence is the is the actual answer so and you know incompetence is probably too too strong of a word but maybe that person isn't performing the way you wanted to because they don't just don't have the skill set it's not that they're trying to be mean or they hate you or anything it's just they don't know how to do it or their definition of what great is is different bingo i'll give you a, a, a real example i'll just go back to the cleaning industry i tend to go back to that because my very first business i started was a cleaning uh-huh. business we have clients in cleaning, by the way. This is fantastic. Couldn't yeah. be more. Couldn't be more separate from from the technology I do today. But imagine you grow up, uh, and you know we've all, we've all went in a house where it's almost a hoarding situation, right? Like, it's, oh it's, yeah, it's just dirty, totally. filthy, whatever. Right? If you're hiring somebody that grew up in that environment and you're bringing them onto your cleaning team, they might be the cleanest person they know, and the dirtiest person you know. Yeah. Their belief structure is different. So when you're saying, why can't you do quality work? They believe right. they are doing quality work. Like mm-hmm. they're doing better quality work than the, anybody they've ever seen, right? Like their mom was a hoarder, their dad was a hoarder, their neighbors were hoarders. I don't, mm-hmm. and I'm being extreme, but you sort of like take that out of the like cleaning into almost every other facet. When you say, here's how we treat a customer. Like as an mm-hmm. owner, we have a very distinct, like what is, great customer service. How did they get their definition? So I, sometimes it's not the skill or even the will. It's just their standard of great is different. And I believe that they're giving you 100% of what they're capable of mm-hmm. or they have a valid reason for not doing so. They may not be capable of doing more today because they've already view, they already view it as top performance. And when we feel like we're giving top performance, we quit paying attention to that as a deficit. We move on. Mm-hmm. But I think if you examine your own life, like if there was an area where you were astutely aware that you were behind your peers in a skill level or a standard, you'd work on it. Like your subconscious would work on it. So I always maintain that the employee is either not aware of it, just because it, you know. I remember the first time I walked into a home that was greater than 5,000 square feet. I was like, people live like this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can can I stay in the pantry? Yeah. (laughs) Right? And it's just good or bad by comparison. And everybody in life's going that. And what, but what we end up doing is we end up believing that the world sees it plus or minus 10% of how we see it. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, Prince, we go back to that, saw it 100% different than you did. Mm Mm-hmm lens, right? Just because where it came from, the experiences. But somehow we tend to have sort of a really narrow range of normal. So we can 
hire somebody in a customer success role and we believe there's a 10% difference, there might be a really wide difference in how they see customer service. And your goal in the hiring process, one, use data to make sure they have the fundamental you know, makeup to do well in that position. But then secondly, where would their standard of great come from? Like, I'll remember sitting talking to my son, who super smart, but uh, wasn't a great conversationalist until you got him going. And I remember having to teach him how to have a conversation. I was like, you know, I've just thrown the ball to you now. You got to throw it back to me because I'm not going to keep throwing you balls. <laughs> like, and right. like, you know, we physically would go through that, and eventually he became a great conversationalist. And like, you, you kind of got to think that through your employees. Like, maybe I have to teach them how to have a great customer success call. Maybe I have to train them how to ask questions on a sales call. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, end because I we're coming up on uh, a time, and this has been incredibly valuable. So thank you. Yes, um, I think one of the things that we did to sort of launch our podcast, which was super fun, is we interviewed the Chat GPT robot, and that was one of our first guests. So wow. we asked. We did ask the chat GPT robot all these questions. And then my cousin, Matt, who has this great deep baritone like Dave does, uh, performed it. But what, what uh, how is AI? Uh, you need to drop me that episode. I got to Yes, gotta absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, dialitinpodcast.com. Like and subscribe. Uh, what? Uh, how does AI <laughs> affecting hiring? It's completely transforming the hiring. Everything from mm-hmm. pattern recognition on the vast amount of resumes that are coming in the front door to candidates mm-hmm. completely writing, you know, their resume cover letter by uh, by ChatGPT and submitting oh my, it without yeah. never actually even applying to the job. Mm-hmm. Um, there's automation systems out there. You could sit and you know have a beer and have have ChatGPT and plugins. Not ChatGPT can't do that on its own. Mm-hmm apply to every position out there and custom write their resume, truthfully even, saying mm-hmm. rewrite it with uh, you know, putting forward the skills that you want for a particular mm-hmm. job, mm-hmm. rewrite the cover letter and submit it, and you don't have to do anything other than you know, take the calls to, to do appointments. So recruiters are operating in that environment, and I think most aren't even aware of it. Like They're sort of aware people are doing that. But right. it's swinging very much in that direction. So uh-huh. you've created this autopilot to screen candidates, and candidates respond with, "I've created an autopilot to just keep applying." Right. So that's a big thing, right? The technology uh-huh. is sort of having to unravel. Second yeah. to that, outside of just numbers and that sort of thing, the ability to to analyze vast amounts of information and come to different conclusions is is super important. I, I think if you're the way I tend to think about AI in this isn't unique to me, but it's a, a an idea that I've adopted is that you're not going to lose your job to an AI. You're going to mm-hmm. lose your job to somebody using an AI. Right. And so you uh, really have to, and the pace of change is so fast. I, I used a product, uh, that's a, that, that's a, a calling product, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, you've, you've called into a bank, right? And have the, mm-hmm. the robot. IVR, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's always wooden and doesn't get it right. I was on a call the other day. I went a full 10 minutes before I realized I was talking to an AI. Ooh, wow. Really? And it's, get, and it's getting better and better. So I started following the technology behind that. Every 30 days, you think it can't get any better and it's getting better. I, will, I would place a bet with anyone that within six months, I can have somebody call you and you can hold a full 40-minute conversation with that person and you will never know it's an AI. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, we're actually confer, confirming that we're talking to you over video as well as audio because yes. you know, I, I think you're much better than an AI would have been. But you know, just, you, just for everybody's benefit... Jonathan is real. You would tend to think so. Yeah. Right. But people have remixed music and recreated the artist's voice and created hits released in that artist's voice. And arguably, like there's two sides of that. Like, uh, you know, how can you rip off this artist's work? But the Mm -hmm. other side of that is if you really enjoyed the music, 
mm-hmm. and you had a good time and it had the emotional lift you wanted to and you know you got you like do you really care that it was created through an AID? I mean like I right. think us you know will sort of snobbishly be oh yes it's not real art but in so many aspects of the economy people won't care mm-hmm. like that 10 minute conversation I had with a customer success agent my fir- when I finally realized that I like I was like how dare they try to trick me <laughs> and then I thought Actually, I had much better service than I've ever gotten from a customer success agent. I would rather have that experience every single time. Yeah. So I I think we look out in the future, you're going to have like, and when I say future, I'm 18 months. Like it's not, it's it's not way out there. I think you're going to have, like we're going to start developing where it's going to be kind of cute to have, you know, bespoke human crafted things like maybe you'll be reading a book that was actually written by a human and it'll be kind of cute it's sort of like you know people do vintage glasses and you know they know it's not the best but you know it was handcrafted i think that almost every area of like why would i hire an attorney when i can sit down and have a very human like conversation with with an ai that sounds human has a sense of humor asks me great questions mm-hmm. and then 30 seconds later gives me the advice and all the contracts i need to do that and it's probably better mm-hmm. than i just think we'll go there like you think yeah. about doctors do you want somebody mm-hmm. operating you know planning your cancer treatment mm-hmm. that went to medical school a decade ago and attends one conference a year and maybe mm-hmm. reads three papers because they're busy? Right. Or would you rather have that diagnosis done by, by uh, an AI that has looked at every single instance of cancer on the planet and can right. remember every single diagnosis and the outcome? I'd mm-hmm. rather have the AI go, you know what, Jonathan? I think you got the, you're only the third case of it, but that's what right. you got. Right. Yeah. And that would be a doctor that's using AI. So the person yeah. using AI to help weed out all the yeah. possibilities. So is it malpractice then at some point for a doctor not to use it? Mm-hmm. Because he's withheld the best quality medicine you can get. I think it's going it's to change education. And I do think as a society, we're not ready for it. And there's a lot of nefarious things that will also happen. You're, you, won't, you won't stop that progress. And I think we have to have a reimagining of you, there's especially as a guy, and probably the same to women, but especially as as you know, we get more equality in the workplace. But I don't think you could grow up as a male in our society, and with not within the first ten minutes of every conversation you've had with a new person, had them ask you, "What do you do for a living?" Yeah, true. true. Yeah, right. Like our identity is, "What do you do for a living?" or, or "How do you earn a living?" And I think that's. It's sort of grotesque. Like, let's change the conversation because why do I have to earn a living? Like, I have a right to be alive. Just, I'm alive, right? Mm-hmm. But we, but our society has, by nature, created this 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 identity around what what do we do to exchange for cash, mm-hmm. right? And I I do believe in 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 capitalism. But I think we have to rethink capitalism to be a humane capitalism for this one reason, if nothing else. There will not be enough jobs for people to work 40, 60 hours a week every week, and neither should they. Right. Like, why is that a good thing? I don't see anybody going, man, I loved working 60 hours a week. Now, maybe Mm -hmm. if you're passionate about something, you're going to do it. Like, I stayed up late last night because I was on this idea that I'm working on in tech. And I could have, you know, when I went to bed, I was like, man, I wish I had another 15 hours. That's totally different than somebody slaving away in a call center, you know, dialing for dollars because they got to put food on the table to... Mm -hmm you know, to, to send more money up the chain to a big corporation. And I'm not anti-corporation either. Right. And it can sound that way. I just think we, we have to be able to have really open conversations without fear. And people get in sort of fear-based thinking of be like, mm-hmm. well, have you ever went in and like tried to install HubSpot as an example? Yep. And you have the, somebody in that company who is the, I don't know, to some other software, Salesforce expert. Right. 
That's their identity. Uh-huh. They don't really care that HubSpot's going to be better or that like at some right. point they're like, well, if we move to HubSpot, I'm not the expert anymore. Yeah. It's a takeaway from them. Yeah. I'm taken away from yeah. that person. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you get the same thing when you sell people, you know, out in California, well, it's stupid to be farming in California because you're drilling down and sucking all the water up and, you know, you can't do that anymore. Well, true from the sideline, that's easy to say and the data would probably support that. But if you're a family that has done that for decades, right, and you have everything invested in that, mm-hmm. it is completely unreasonable to think that person is just going to voluntarily go, yep, you know what? Done it for generations. Let me turn the tap off. Right. Right. It, it, it's just not. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a very long winded way to say, how do I think AI is going to change hiring? Well, yeah, I think AI well, I is going to change yeah. everything. Yes. And that is given. I don't care what you think about AI. Mm-hmm. It is here and it's, it's actually always been here. AI mm-hmm. is really just advanced mathematics. Yep. We, we have problems. Mm-hmm. Here, I, I had as a consulting uh, company and was helping bring to mar- market a quantum computer. If, you, if you're not familiar with quantum computing, it's mm-hmm. super cutting edge things. It will completely transform uh, the, the way we are able to solve math problems or other problems. But think about like uh, a caffeine molecule. We drink coffee every day. Mm-hmm. There's no computer on the planet right now that can model a caffeine molecule. Hmm. Really? We know, we know how to do it. Mm-hmm. We just don't have enough compute power to do it. So, <laughs> Google, uh, so mm-hmm. uh, Google has their quantum computer. IBM's also doing quantum computer. And uh, about mm-hmm. a year ago, uh, they solved a computer, uh, an equation uh, in three minutes that would have taken the world's largest supercomputer 150 years of compute time. Yeah. Now, the problem they were solving wasn't meaningful in any way. It's designed to be a math problem to challenge computers. Right. But the fact that it was able to solve something that's previously been unsolvable, you, like, why is that important? And, and this is, I don't think people are, like, they're just whistling away at whatever they're doing in their day job, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when you can, uh, when, when we make medicine today, right? They go in, they study the genome, they study DNA, right? And they say, we think the problem's here, here, here. And so they cut that. They literally go into a wet lab and they have to make a culture and they have to do all that. And then they test it and then, oh, it didn't work. So now let's narrow it down, right? And you're just sort of narrowing down to get to a problem. When you can model in a computer environment every possible outcome, you don't have to use a wet lab. You can instantly try every possible combination to solve Alzheimer's, cancer. It's a computing problem. It's not a knowledge problem that, uh, that, that, we're, that we're constrained by. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can think about this in sort of an archaic industry. You would have, when you're making a, a, an airplane today, there is no airplane manufacturer that builds the whole airplane and then just goes out and puts it in a wind tunnel and blows wind <laughs> at it to see if the, the wings will come off. <laughs> right. They do it in a computer simulation. So they, they can test all the wind forces and they, they can build a close to perfect aircraft first time in the manufacturing plant. That same sort of, compu- that's just an evolution in computing power and we take it for granted now. Like That same thing's happening in medicine. Mm-hmm. And it will be in sales. We've just, we, you know, the human genome's just been completely mapped. Mm-hmm. And already, if you like Google genomic-based medicine, the things that are coming in the pipeline, there's already been three or four drugs approved for it. They're like revolutionary. It's not like I made you, you're blind and I made you see better. Mm-hmm. You're, you're blind and now you have 20-20 vision. Right. Like completely undid, undid that health problem. And yes, it's a mm-hmm. very... Uh, a, a subset of macular degeneration, but mm-hmm. we're going to get when we get enough compute power and we get a- AI running in the background to recognize those patterns. We're going to be fixing things like that. So mm-hmm. then the question just becomes: What do we do as a as a human race with all this time we have? Right. Like we used to have right. to go down to the river and 
crush our clothes on rocks to get them clean. And then, you know, now we have water piped into our houses. So we sit and watch TV. Right. And, and we put them in the washing machine and, you know, that was too hard for some of us. So we hired a maid to put it in the washing machine mm-hmm. or we send it out. So I just think it's fun. Like let's imagine life where when you meet somebody, right. The phrase, what do you do to earn a living is meaningless. Like they look at right. you like you are speaking a foreign language. Yeah. And the question is, what do you do to live? Uh-huh. I, that's the future I'm looking forward to. Oh, I love that. And that's, that's actually a perfect place to tap into or, or go to part two next time. Because I think we could have another hours long conversation. Hey, oh, this is wonderful. Yeah. No, you're fantastic. Uh, Jonathan, where, where can people find you? The book, uh, The Sales Boss, is available on Amazon. Yeah, the, uh, the sales boss. Uh, you can also email me, John J O N. Just don't put an H in it at the sales boss uh, or John at whohire.com. I would give you perception predict, but everybody spells that wrong. So whohire <laughs> is really easy. The sales boss is easy. Love it. 